Hi, I'm Gigi. And I'm Ryan. And we are your hosts of Diversity On Screen. I'm the comms and creative manager at A New Normal. And I'm the comms and project assistant. We're absolute film fanatics and I did a lot of it in my degree. And we're here to take you on a journey through time via film. So thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the rest of the episode. Today we're talking about the American horror film Get Out, which is exciting for the both of us because we we both love this film. Um, and I don't love horrors. <laughs> so Get Out is written and directed by Jordan Peele of SNL fame of Key and Peele. It's his debut film. So what a debut film to come out on. Mm-hmm. So we basically start out in Chris's flat. So Chris is the, our main character. We see it intercut with him getting ready to go out and you know, showered, shaved, and this woman getting breakfast, really. And it all comes back to Chris's flat where they start, it's revealed that they're boyfriend and girlfriend, or partners, if you will. And they start talking about this trip that they're taking to the girl's parents' house. The subject kind of changes immediately to if the parents of the white girl, his girlfriend, know that Chris is indeed black. This is actually a question that I've asked my partners before, so I could really, really relate in that moment. I remember when I was going to meet my partner's parents, I remember just sort of like building up to it, building up to it, building up. And I literally asked, I was like, do they know I'm black? And he was like, "Uh, I don't think I've mentioned it. And it was so interesting to see that moment like replayed for me because I think, I think it's one of those things where I think, and they do such a good job of explaining this through the film that at first you feel like it's not something that you should mention or not something that you should talk about because, you know, it's it relates back to that sort of 90s perspective on I don't see colour, mm. which actually just wipes away, you know, what something that's so integral to your experience as a human being in this white world. So I think I think it is difficult for partners because that's probably not something that you feel like you should go in with. But I do think it's important to sort of support your partner and have, you know, those conversations with them and then with your family beforehand so it's not a surprise and it's not to say that like they're racist or you're racist or anyone's racist it's just we live in a world where you assume everybody is white unless you are told otherwise so in order to have that person have a you know an easier moment in something that's already very daunting meeting your parent you know your partner's parents I do think it's an important discussion to have and I completely understand why people have confusion and anxiety surrounding it on both sides. But I think it's it just always comes back to communication. Just always talk to your partner about it first. And just, I think what I found really annoying with Rose's character is that she just makes everything a joke. Like any serious concern he raises, she just turns into a joke. And like, not everything is a joke. But sorry, that's <laughs> that's my, my, my first moment in the film where I was like, oh, I've been there, brother. <laughs> <laughs> So the very beginning actually is Lakeith Stanfield. He is out walking and he's on the phone to assuming his girlfriend or partner He's on his own and it's dark. And then a car just goes past and then it, you know, slows down. And Lakeith is like, I don't know what's happening. I'm just going to keep moving because I don't want to be a part of this. And then the car actually does a, a U-turn in the road and comes back towards Lakeith the camera pans in a way where we we stop seeing the car and then when he crosses the road it pans back to the car which is i love this little scene and the car door is open and run rabbit run is playing that was in my head for days <laughs> run rabbit run rabbit run run, run rabbit run. yeah and then <laughs> out of nowhere we we he gets attacked by a, a guy wearing like a a knight's helmet and he gets shoved into the boot of the car. And I didn't realise until sort of reading it afterwards, because I know the name Trayvon Martin, of course, but I didn't know sort of the, the, the explicit details of the case. But I didn't realise this was sort of meant to echo that case. So Trayvon Martin was a 17-year-old black boy who was murdered in a gated community. So he was, I think he was visiting his dad's new fiance, something like that, and was walking around in their gated community. I think he was on the phone as well, actually. And um, his, um, a, 
I think he's Latino American man saw him saw he had black skin assumed he was um you know a threat an altercation ensued and he shot him dead and I didn't realize that for a lot of people who sort of knew the, the details of that that horrible tragic cruel incident that it was sort of meant to echo that and to sort of like shake you into reality almost immediately and then I think and then go into the comedy and that, that sounds bad but you're sort of anyone who's seen the film knows that that's something he does really really well and I think when you see interviews with him he says that sort of balance between tragedy and comedy is like a line he just walks impeccably somehow through this I don't know how he did it but he really really did and I think I feel like I really underestimated him when I saw he was in Key and Peele. I was like, oh, like, you know, as a sketch comedian mm. guy. And when people were like, oh, it's Key and it's Jordan Peele's film. Like, I was like, oh, okay, cool. And like, I didn't realize, like, he is so smart, like, yes. so, so clever. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed this film. After Rose and Chris are in their apartment, they uh, they get onto the road to, to head upstate New York to visit the parents. They're basically on, just, you know, talking in the car and, Chris gets a phone call from his best friend Rod, who is a great character. I love him, uh, and it just just comed- comedy relief, really. At this this point, uh, he was like, you, "You never go to a white girl's house." <laughs> 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 that really, really, that really made me laugh. And uh, and then when they're in the car, they're driving along, and all of a sudden, a deer comes out and jumps the road, and they basically hit this deer, and it goes flying into the woods. They're, they're both so scared of what happened. You know, it's still alive in the woods. And then I think the police, the like a law enforcement agency is called, basically just discussing the, the what happened, the incident. And then the officer asks Chris for his ID. At this point, Rose starts, you know, defending him, kind of almost white saviour in a way. <laughs> starts white savioring. Yeah. But we... Later on in the film, we understand why she's doing that, basically. Yeah, I only found that out literally about an hour ago, and I was shocked. Yeah. Um, but I thought I thought that Chris's reaction to it, compared to her, like, so starkly contrasted with her reaction, I think, is uh, just something I've definitely, like, had in my life that, like, sorry, not, you know, obviously I don't, you know, I am, I am a light-skinned woman, I do you know, privilege from colorism and, you know, we don't have the same, although it's not perfect, we don't have the same police brutality climate that they do over there. But I think the way that Jordan Peele approached black people's reactions to conversations about race and white people's reactions to conversations about race, I thought was super insightful because I think for me, you know, I, I navigate a few circles where I'm, you know, the, the person who talks about these things and sometimes there's a lot of pressure that comes with that that you know for Chris and for a lot of black men like this is just their every day this is not something that he wants to necessarily talk about or dissect or go into he doesn't want to talk about oh you know when like when, later on when Rose is like my dad was all my man my man and he's like yep like mm. he's just so uninterested in talking about this because it's his everyday experience and I think for me that speaks to the wider idea that's like finally entering people's consciousness that resolving race relations isn't just a you know the burden of the black person it's you know it's white people that need to have these conversations and talk about these things and work them out rather than always sort of exhausting black labor to sort of understand them and talk about them more and i thought that was really really cleverly done in this film for me we arrive at Rose's parents' house in upstate New York, and they're driving up the driveway, and we 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 get introduced to Walter, who is just you know doing gardening. I think he's doing and, and being creepy and being very creepy. You'll you'll get that little vibe off of other people in this story as well. Um. So they get to the front door of the the house and we get introduced to Rose's family, her dad, her mum, and her brother. And it's classic white liberal, you know, conversations ensue. I would have voted for Obama for a third term if third I could. Term, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That classic line already. Um 
there's actually a really good crit- critic quote that I want to read out a bit later that that goes into that. Um, so Dean, Rose's dad, shows Chris around their house. He shows him a picture of Jesse Owens that he has up on the wall. Um, came first in the 100 meter um, sprint at the Berlin Olympics under the reign of Hitler. So it was a really, really big moment because this country, which was hosting the Olympics, had the rise of fascism and, you know, their obsession with the Aryan race and genetic cleansing. And then a black man comes and wins and beats them all. So it was a really powerful moment. But it's so interesting because, again, Jordan Peele just just doing such a good job of, obviously, that is a good thing and is a well-meaning thing for him to sort of talk about that. But it's the way he highlights that Dean, Rose's dad, is just obsessed with Chris being black. Everything they talk about has to do with Chris being black because that's the only way he can connect to him. He's think, And it shows that he's thinking of him first as a black man and secondly as a human. So he doesn't talk to him about his photography or, I don't know, his dog, whatever, what he might, a normal person. Everything they talk about is about Chris being black because that's all Dean sees him as. So, And then we go to they're drinking juice outside in like a gazebo type thing and georgina comes along to top up their drinks and she's filling it up and she starts glazing over in a way and she starts shaking and overfills a drink rose's mum taps on her mug with her spoon and it kind of clicks georgina back into place and she corrects her posture apologizes and her, uh, rose's mum tells her to go and you know lie down for a bit and she does and that obviously is a very off scenario mm first kind of glimpse at what happens a bit later and I think it's one of those when you go into watching a horror film so I watched I watched Rosemary's Baby last night which actually relates to this film as I'll talk about a little bit later but it's interesting that the director is obviously so aware that you're waiting for something bad to happen that they don't need to build that impending sense of doom in the same way I don't know a different kind of film might or something like Parasite for example where people didn't have and didn't really know what genre it was because it's almost genreless sort of going in everybody knew going to watch Get Out it was a horror so when these creepy moments happen they have so much more weight and so I think that's when maybe a scene like that wouldn't have had so much importance if you weren't really looking for something weird to happen so I think that's yeah that's why it creeped me out so much yeah and then we uh, we find out that Chris is a smoker and he needs to go out for a smoke one night. He goes out and then there was this 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 scene that I think loads of people parodied parodied over the time of Walter and he's out running essentially, and he runs straight at Chris and then all of a sudden turns away, and yeah, that turned into like a challenge on like TikTok or Vine or whatever. I can't remember which one it was at the time. And I think the funny thing for that with me, for me was that, I don't know if you watched the trailer, because there was so much hype around the mm. trailer. They obviously cut out the bit where he turns away. So you assume he's coming for him. And again, I think that's where they really played with the horror audience then, because you assume something terrible is going to happen because you've seen it in the trailer. He looks deranged. And then suddenly he turns left and he's just doing his running, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> doing my exercises, which really plays off that horror and comedy sort of duality of this film and then he turns back to the house and he sees georgina in the window and she's she's talking to herself in a way mm-hmm. so that, there's two bits like that happen where georgina's seen through the window and she's she's acting you know weird and then chris goes back inside quietly he doesn't want to smoke i think after what's just happened and he walks through the house and he bumps into Rose's mum basically in in her little parlour and she beckons him to sit down and they start talking about his childhood really mm-hmm. and this this scene really got me this, yeah. this is where it turns really into kind of that horror element where you finally realise that maybe there is this family is you know weird and well you already know that but there's there's something going on also just the sound of the teacup was just yeah. going through me I just it's just amazing how he weaponized such like a simple everyday object into this this tool for fear I Mm. felt that was absolutely magical the way he did that but you know the flashbacks of his childhood I think everything else in the film 
not everything else, that's a sweeping statement, but a lot of the rest of the film is so heightened and blown out of proportion that it doesn't feel real. It still feels, it feels funny because it's so blown out of proportion and it feels horrifying because it's so blown out of proportion. You know, Georgina and, um, Georgina and Walter don't seem like real people. And you can tell that the dad, Dean, is sort of has this really false front. For me, that was the moment where I really like sort of snapped into like genuine feelings because Chris is the most real character in this. He's not pretending to be more liberal than he is or appearing really strained and creepy like Georgina. He's just that normal person that we relate to. And you see something really horrible that he obviously went through with his mum. And again, this is Jordan Peele just being amazing, that the emotional reaction you have to that is so heightened because of all the caricatures that are happening around it. And I thought that was really, same as you, I thought that was really powerful. Yeah, so what happened with Chris's mum was that she was killed in a hit and run when Chris was younger. He has the sort of inkling that something bad has happened when his mum doesn't come home, but he's so paralyzed with fear which really alludes to sort of what happens later on in the film but he's so paralyzed with fear he just stays there watching the tv and he's completely consumed by this feeling of guilt because he knows he should have called the police he should have tried to find her he should have done something but I think it's that thing where you he was trying to make it not feel real and random link but it kind of reminded me of in skins when when um, Sid's dad dies and he's just has the body in the living room and just doesn't know what to do with it. So he just goes to school and continues with his day. And I saw that, yeah, with Chris, it was just, he was just completely frozen by fear and doesn't stop punishing himself for it. And that's, oh, that's the real emotional section that sort of runs through the film because it comes up a couple more times, doesn't it? Yeah, so it, it links directly to the beginning of the film where they did hit that deer echoing the hit and run that his mum was killed by. I think there's a line where she could have been alive still if someone was actually looking out out there looking for her, she might have been saved. If we can put that directly into the deer situation where it was still alive in the woods, but it was crying out for help and it was dying. And that, Mm -hmm. that kind of echoes that point. And we'll see that again later in the film. And then what happens next? So... Chris gets put into the sunken place, which is very creepy to think about. And it was Mm -hmm. very well done visually. Yeah, because it could have looked so cheap, but it didn't. So Chris basically wakes up the next morning thinking that the previous events were all part of a dream. Until the fact when Walter approaches him and apologizes for frightening him when he was doing his exercises. Which (laughs) then confirms the fact that Chris didn't dream all of that. It did actually happen. So it's the day of the annual get-together of Rose's family, or it's it's described as family members and friends. Mm. <laughs> and so all these all these white people were turning up in these black SUVs and stuff like that, you know, classic ominous villain type cars. And they all start getting introduced to Chris in a way. And each of the pairings, they have very particular things to say to Chris about being black and his body type and his culture. This is one of my favourite film scenes in a film ever, because I think for me, really powerful cinema is when it makes you see something that you can't really explain or explain something that you can't really put into words. And I thought it was just such a powerful satire on how insidious racism is. I think a lot of people, when they hear the word racism or racist, they think it's, they they only think of overt racism. They think of like physical violence, of slavery, of like, you know, being beaten, being whipped. And that's not how it's manifested in today's society. It's manifested through these really sort of insidious microaggressions that when you look at them on their own, people are like, oh, you know, that's not a big deal. Like, being black is cool but when you really really look at them and what that means and what it means people actually think of black people and I think that really speaks to the wider sort of twist in this film that this sort of appropriation of black cultures and appropriation of black bodies is something that you know connect does still connect to slavery that sort of taking over and ownership of the physical strength of the black body and I just thought that scene I think you had like 
oh so is it true like is it really better um you know oh you know Tiger Woods don't you (laughs) I can't tell you how many times that has happened to me when people just assume that I should know something or know how to do something because you know me being black should be my whole personality apparently and I just thought it was such a powerful scene I literally watched the YouTube clip about a million times there's a couple of YouTube clips that I've watched a load of times one of them is this clip from Get Out and another one is the um, friend like me bit from Aladdin. (laughs) These are my two two top clips I watch all the time. I've showed loads of people this clip. I just thought it was so powerful and just shows how microaggressions can be really, really harmful in how somebody thinks about themselves and how others think about them and how that really, really influences unconscious bias. So it's not that necessarily, I mean, with police brutality, black bodies are being killed, but how having those assumptions on what somebody likes, what they're like or who they are can infiltrate, you know, for something that we do, the workplace, for thinking that, okay, you know, black people like hip hop, black people are less professional. I won't hire a black person for this job without actually knowing you think that you only know the first layer. And that's why they're so, so harmful and have to be really, really closely looked at and challenged. And I think that's the other thing that I think a lot of people might feel bad when they have these first initial thoughts about certain groups of people or certain things. But I'm a really, really strong believer in you're not your first thought or you're your second thought. Your first thought is what you've been conditioned to think. Your second thought is who you've decided to be. So I think being able to challenge those microaggressions and challenge that racism that you have in yourself can only happen if you see it first and accept that racism isn't this like horrible, like, sorry, it is a horrible, terrible thing, but it's not just physical violence it manifests itself in everyday conversations and everyday society yeah there's unconscious bias and all of that as well there's this yeah which we as a company have a lot to say on yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's not for this podcast no. so after being subjective to all of that by the all these white folk he, he grabs his camera and he goes out and starts taking photos of the woods again he just wants to get some away time from all these people chris bumps into a blind man called jim who is at the event and he's you know he's got someone with him to just help him around and stuff and then they start talking about photography and art because jim is a an art dealer and chris has questions like oh how do you how do you see all this art how do you know if this art is good if you're a blind man and he says he has people describe it to him it's not about the visuals that he is interested in as much it's how people perceive that mm-hmm. which is kind of a ironic thing for later on coming back from the woods and talking to jim he bumps into logan and his wife or partner logan is a black man and he's dressed very fancy very smart his mannerisms are very posh and polite and I think that's the thing because it's not that he's like being polite it's that he's clearly so uncomfortable in his own skin and I think they did a really really good job of acting this that there's the you can kind of tell they're like really really strained as people so it's not that it's not that like it's unusual for him to be sort of you know dressed fancy or being polite of course there's like plenty of people who do Mm. that it's that he appears so strained and it seems so he's like hello sir like it's not it's doesn't it's clearly not how he speaks and it's clearly not how he dresses and they do such a good job of making it look like that and just him looking so uncomfortable in his own skin and that's what he says he goes up to him he says oh it's good to see another brother around here and then logan turns to his wife he goes Chris was just telling me he was glad that there's another black person here. <laughs> and I think that's the bit where you're like, a black person would never do that. They, yeah. You would never do that. The that's, next bit from that as well is he goes and gives him a fist bump. But instead of giving the fist bump, Logan shakes his hand and he's like, that's okay. That's a bit weird. I think it was, that was the bit that was interesting to me is that that came straight after the scene where we had all of these people assuming black people do these things, assuming black people like Tiger Woods. And I thought at first I was like, hold on, 
a second ago, we were just saying that not every black person does the same thing. But now we're saying black people can't greet with handshakes and hellos. And at first I was like, there's a bit of cognitive dissonance going here, on here. And then I had a, a bigger think about it and realized that what I think, you know, Jordan Peele is trying to say is that there are ultimately differences between, you know, people of different races in the same way that when we were looking at she's got to have it where we saw there are ultimately differences between men and women it doesn't necessarily mean all of them you know do fist bumps and all of them say call each other brother or whatever I, you know I don't, I don't call people brother but I think it was a really nice way to show that in you know that there is there are there are differences and that's okay I thought that was yeah that was my big thought on that moment yeah that's great so he goes upstairs and you there, there's that really eerie moment where you see everybody stop talking. Mm. And that really, really freaked me out when I first saw it. And then he goes to get his phone and it's not on charge. And we see before that it's quite, it's quite like a weird central plot point, him putting his phone on charge. Yeah. But he, you saw him do it before and then um, he notices it's, it's off charge. And then Rose comes in the room and Chris says my phone was on charge like I know my phone was on charge and she's like again doing this thing I was sort of criticizing her form earlier like making a joke and then she calls Georgina in and um Georgina says oh sorry you know I was wiping down the side and then must have taken your phone off and it was obviously not Georgina but that sort of like comes out sort of later in the film he goes downstairs with his phone and he tries to get a photo of Logan he inadvertently has his flash on and we've all been there yeah (laughs) (laughs) trying to take a sneaky pic of someone and (laughs) it flashes on and uh and logan has this like super reaction to the flash you see his eyes go really wide his nose starts bleeding and he starts shouting at chris get out get out and first impression of that because I thought at first he was like saying he wasn't welcome Mm. rather than you need to like you need to leave for your safety it seemed like he was just being horrible to him yeah I I thought that I thought he was like you know being horrible to Chris telling him to get out rather than warning him for what's coming and I guess it's like yeah it's it's obviously purposefully ambiguous there they they calm Logan down and and Logan goes in and with Rose's mum and does some hypnotherapy. I think they uh, actually say it was uh, just a, a mild epileptic fit and he's all good now. And he, he comes out and he says, sorry, sorry for uh, scaring you there, Chris. And he you know acts normal again. Mm. And, uh, and Chris is kind of like a bit shocked from the whole ordeal. And he basically gets comforted by Rose. But while this is happening, there's this gathering in the garden in by the gazebo of loads of chairs and and stuff like kind of like a a bidding bidding war and it's it's a silent bidding with pictures picture of chris on the side and they're all bidding on who gets to own chris do you think the three was three pounds three hundred thousand or three million higher three million i think it's got to be, yeah. When I first saw it, I was like, "Hmm, you've either got to be, you've got to be really rich to be doing that." Yeah. <laughs> we are calling it a, a threer, a fiver. Mm. And it turns out, Jim Hudson, the blind art dealer, wins the bid, which really hurt me because he was the only other likable character. Yeah. I but thought. that's He's... that's the whole point of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> I think I think but... Peel actually says something about. Um, Jim Hudson is part of the systemic racism of what's happening in it. He says that even if he is blind, he's still allowing this thing to occur, this this bidding and all of this culture that surrounds that to happen, even though he is a blind man. He's turning a blind eye. Hmm. Yeah, in a way. So Chris then goes upstairs to pack his stuff. He wants to leave. He's He's telling Rose that he wants to leave grabs his phone and basically calls Rod and sends Rod off charge again. Off charge again, yeah. And he phones Rod and sends him the picture of Logan that he took with the flash on. And Rod 
instantly confirms that it is Andre, who is a missing black man for about six months now. The guy uh, from the beginning. The guy from the beginning of the film. And um, at that moment, um, Ron is just like, you need to get out of there, you need to get out of there. And I think this is the moment when Chris starts to take it seriously, because before he was just being painfully polite, as, as you are with the first time you meet your in-laws, you know? <laughs> and he's just starts packing his bag and goes into this cupboard and finds a box full of pictures. And bear in mind from the first part of the film, Rose tells Chris that he's the first black man she's ever dated. And he finds countless pictures of this lost Kardashian sister (laughs) with like 10 different black boyfriends. It must be more and smiling with all of them. And then is obviously so freaked out. That's obviously such a strange lie to tell. And I think at first I wonder if he thought it was that she was fetishizing him or, you know, obsessed with him for his race. But obviously, as we come to the twist, there's something much more dark than that. And then he turns around and Rose is there and she's like, hey babe. <laughs> she's like, everything okay? He's like, yeah, 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 we need to go. Like, I don't feel comfortable, we need to go. And he starts to sort of, run downstairs and tell this story, fake story about how his dog's fallen ill and Rod's called him and he has to go back and look after the dog. And there's this like almost comical scene where he's like, where are the keys? Where she's like, babe, I don't know, I don't know. He's like, where are the keys? Where are the keys? They're like, where are you going? He's like, pass me the keys. And then she holds them up. She's like, you know, I can't give you these, babe. <laughs> it's like and- a complete turn of character. She drops this facade that she's had that's basically this nice white girl into this like emotionless elitist really in the, in a way a posture like corrects and mm. yeah it's a very good twist really she does a very good job with that so then she jingles the keys at him chris goes for the door and the mum taps the teacup and he falls into the sunken place and then when he wakes up he's tied to the chair in a room looking at the tv and this creepy video starts to play. It's a video of this old white man who we then later get introduced to as the Armitage's grandparents. And we're introduced to the cult of the coagula. Oh, well done. This... I remembered. I yeah. just heard it, the cult of the coagula. The coagula. <laughs> the cult of the coagula, which is just this elitist cult that have been trying to find a way to essentially to transform themselves into better people physically in a way and we're it's revealed that both georgina and walter are those grandparents he's he's on this chair and after this video plays jim hudson basically comes up on on a live broadcast of of the room and he's being prepared for this procedure and jim explains that he doesn't care about his race or anything like that. He only cares about his eyes because of obviously he is a blind man and he wants this really good photographer's eyes. So, and I think it's it's worth noting that the sort of photography in this film has quite like a central point and it sort of mirrors with Stepford Wives, which this film gets compared to a lot, which I haven't seen. But in that film, Chris's character is very, very similar to the main character in that film. She's also, you know, quite polite. She's a little bit sort of nervous and sort of obviously aware of the social injustices in the world, but she doesn't directly engage with them and tries to not be overly paranoid with them, which obviously sounds very, very similar to Chris. She's also a photographer and it sort of reflects his ability to sort of have so much insight on things. And I thought it was also interesting that Jim wants to appropriate his sight and appropriate his insight, which is interesting because there's like a double layer to it. He actually wants to physically take his eyes so he can see. And then a second layer where he knows that Chris is a photographer, so he has an insight he also wants to take. And I think it's interesting commentary on appropriation, which is obviously such a hot topic around race relations generally. Uh, so Chris gets knocked out again by the a, a recording of the tea cup being, you know, tapped. And sorry, just something else I wanted to say that I was reading about the tea cup, how it's meant to, it's this 
really, really everyday object, obviously kind of slightly refined, like the teacup she has, has this beautiful saucer. It's made from this lovely china and it's sort of a symbol of civility that's sort of turned into a symbol of aggression. And I was also reading that that sort of relates to the conflicts that surround tea, how it's something that was taken through, you know, imperialism and the crusades and the absolute like ripping up of other countries for the profit of Britain that's then become something of our identity that, you know, we are the tea loving nation when it's actually something we've just taken from somewhere else. We've completely absorbed something and taken it on as our own identity, like leaving so much bloodshed in, in the path that we took to take it. So I thought that was a really interesting symbol. Before Chris gets knocked unconscious, he notices that he's been scraping at the chair and there's this fluff coming out of the chair. And I think it's important to note that it's cotton, not, not just any old fluff, oh. um, which is obviously something so innately related to slavery and the destruction of black bodies and ownership of black bodies for, for white greed and wealth. So it's interesting that obviously the scratching sort of alluded to throughout the film is something he does when he's nervous he does it when he sat on his bed I think waiting for his mum to come home when he knows something bad's happened to her and he's scratching the chair there with the cotton coming out of it and then he somehow puts it in his ears which I think is a plot hole <laughs> and um, to stop him being able to hear the hypnosis and it was just interesting that they used this visual tool for slavery and inverted it as a tool for escape and I thought that was again just something really really powerful in this film just completely flipping stereotypes on its head so of course first of all you have his girlfriend Rose the sort of meek white um, woman she's she's the villain she's not the Vic like we see in Rosemary's Baby or Stepford Wives but she's actually the villain and the perpetrator and how you know you can have sort of toxic femininity is another thing that I feel like she kind of embodies that sort of manipulation of emotion and um, use of her meekness to appear um, dis to disarm others. And I just think, yeah, the flipping that on its head by having it be the white girl who leads the, the black guy into, you know, horror is something that I really, really enjoyed. That sounds weird, but <laughs> I, I also enjoyed how a lot all the white characters were sort of 3d 2d for once and it wasn't they were being stereotyped and not because I think that's something they should do to anyone but I think it was probably interesting for people who are white to see what it's like to be stereotyped in film mm. because we we know that the cotton has been pulled out of the chair and we find out a bit later that Chris has stuffed it in his ear to you know stop the hypnosis going through Jeremy comes through to you know prepare him for this surgery and he unties Chris and then we move away from Chris in the chair and we pan towards Jeremy like sorting out the wheelchair and stuff all of a sudden Jeremy gets smacked with this billiards ball and and he just keeps going at him I think he just keeps hitting his head until he's on the ground and he's bleeding out and he he try he leaves the room but before he leaves the room, he sees this deer framed on the wall, a deer head on the wall with its antlers still sticking out and stuff like that. So it's a male, male deer. And then in the surgery room, we have Dean Armitage, who's the, the father. He's preparing Jim, which is a very gruesome scene, actually. Oh, it really disgusting. Yeah. I, can't, I can't even look. You know what? I didn't even look and I can still see it in my eyes. Yeah. That it's disgusted me. He's cutting Jim's head open. Oh, but sorry, just to backtrack slightly, how did he put the cotton in his ears? Because no. I get that he untied him then, but she was trying to hypnotise him before, and surely he would have noticed if they were untied, you know? I think there was a bit of leverage, uh, like it was a bit loose, you know, he could have... I guess you could... Yeah, put yeah. his head down to his legs or, or somewhere <laughs> like that and, and popped it in. Let's go with that. Let's go with that. That kind of seals over that plot hole. Dean is cutting open Jim's head, uh, like taking the skin off, putting the skin in, into a bin, and then he gets a, a bone saw basically and starts carving circular around the top of Jim's head and takes his 
his uh you had to that bit didn't you yeah yeah i had to had to takes the <laughs> top part of his skull off so his his brain is literally ex- exposed and then <laughs> dean then he's he's like oh jim's ready he's looking for jeremy and he moves out into the hallway and he looks down one end of the hallway and then he looks down the other end of the hallway and all of a sudden you hear running and slam chris has taken the deer head off of the wall and impaled dean with the deer's head that was a pretty good move from yeah. him <laughs> i mean disgusting but it was a good <laughs> move yeah but it was, it was good and then dean dean falls over back into the surgery room and I think he knocks over a, a candle or, or some kind of flame that was in there. So stuff starts like lighting on fire. Chris is trying to get out of the house. So he, he goes back upstairs and he bumps into Missy, the mum, And she tries to reach for the cup of tea, if you will, and the spoon to, to hypnotize him again. But Chris was fast enough to, to lap it away from her. Missy then pulls a knife out from somewhere and goes to stab Chris, but Chris puts his hand out and knife goes right through his hand. For for audio listeners, I am literally mimicking my pen going through my hand. <laughs> and, and he still takes it. He takes it. He does not care at this point. He he just wants to to leave. He takes the knife through the hand. I think he also he then with the knife still in his hand stabs missy with it oh does he not pull it out and i don't stab- think he put no i don't think he pulled it out i think it was still in his hand and he kind of pressed it against her and killed her there. Yeah, that right. yeah. and then he takes the knife out after that and he goes walking towards the front door front door is locked and he tries to unlock the door and then all of a sudden jeremy comes back somehow survived being bashed you know in the head multiple times and they start fighting over trying to open the door. And Chris has like the the best idea ever. He tries to open the door and Jeremy uses his foot to slam it shut again. And as soon as Jeremy does that, Chris stabs the knife right into his leg. Mm. And he obviously, yeah, he goes to the ground and uh, and Chris finishes him off, I think. Uses his foot <laughs> against his skull. And then um, he's going outside, isn't he? And we flash to the one of the funniest things in the film, <laughs> which is Rose sat looking like an absolute creep, listening to music in her headphones and eating cereal with one hand and drinking milk with the other. Such a creepy and, thing to do. Yeah. And apparently um, a lot of people misinterpreted this as like a like a race commentary thing. And um, Jordan Peele put in to be like, made sure it was on the record that no, he just wanted to show that she was a weird character. Yeah. And that she, before she was a facade and now she's she's actually being herself this weird Creep. character. Yeah. Who drinks milk and eats cereal one by one. Separately. Yeah. <laughs> Chris is leaving the house and he gets into a car that is revealed to be the car from the beginning of the film that had run rabbit playing and that uh, Andre was, you know, kidnapped in, into this symbolizing that the brother was the one who was kidnapping people in his own way. And that's suggested earlier, isn't it? He says, you're lucky it was Rose. Like I hear yeah. that Jeremy has much more horrible ways of, what do they call ways. it? Do they call it poaching or capturing something creepy like that? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. But, Chris starts driving away and then all of a sudden out of nowhere Georgina is just in the middle of the road and Chris hits her he slams on the brakes and and looks at her through the mirror and he's he's reminded of of you know the hit and run that his mum was in the the deer basically the when he hits the deer beforehand mm-hmm. it's all it's all linked in this 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 one moment where he he feels that he has to be obligated to go back and get georgina so he See, does he even says it verbally he says don't do it man just keep driving but he but his consciousness like it just overpowers him and he goes back and gets her puts her in the car she's unconscious and he's he's driving away then all of a sudden she's not unconscious anymore and she starts screaming and grabbing at the wheel and stuff they veer off and hit a tree 
she like goes straight into the window dead chris is injured chris gets out of the car and it's sort of yeah in between this we see a flash over to rose who takes her headphones out because georgina screaming has alarmed her and her and walter grab these shotguns and start walking out to the front this is where chris is now trying to run away and he's being shot at by rose rose then tells walter to go after chris in this moment walter like full-on runs towards chris and tackles him to the ground chris in his altercation manages to get his phone out and take a photo with the flash on of walter who in turn like we've seen before with logan changes him back to who he originally was in that body and he he asks rose for the rifle and he says because he wanted to finish him off himself but instead of doing that he shoots rose right in the stomach and then he turns the gun on himself and i think that's something that i was reading about this film that was a really really powerful symbol because at first i thought the flash was quite random almost and I thought it was like obviously useful because it's an everyday object, you know, to the modern person. But I think it was really, really interesting when I was reading about it that Jordan Peele intended for this film to be a jolt, sort of a flash that wakes you up to reality and sort of talks about how images and television can be used to manipulate perception and how sometimes you just need that one flash of reality to sort of shake you out of it and how this film sort of serves as that flash into reality and how you know the the racial situation in the world is the true horror it's not monsters it's not i don't know the boogeyman it's everyday things that lots of people sort of turn a blind eye to or try to notice as little as they can rose is like bleeding out on the ground water is now dead chris gets up and he, he goes over to rose and he starts to strangle her which I, I thought was kind of a, a weird weird thing for Chris to, to go up and do. I mean, sure, it's it was a tragic event and traumatizing and what he's been through probably kind of validates all of that. But he actually, he can't do it in the end and he stops because of Rose starts smiling at him. And it's kind of sadistic in a way that she, she was enjoying him killing her and strangling mm-hmm. her. He doesn't do it in the end, letting her essentially bleed out i think on the ground he starts walking away and we hear sirens and we see blue and red lights and i thought that was such a powerful way to sort of end it that that is something that for a black man in america incites so much fear that obviously all of this messed up stuff has happened to him but he's the sort of last survivor and you see rose smile because she's like here we go and it sort of reminds you of that film in the beginning where she can literally swear at a police officer and nothing happens. Where as for somebody like George Floyd, he can sell a CD and be killed for it. So I thought it was really nice that then Rod steps out of the car. And I know that there's alternate endings that one of the alternative endings was that he was gonna end up in prison. But I thought it was nice that he went for this alternate version because I think films that try and tie racism up in a happy bow at the end, that racism is cured, racism is fine. Like, look, this character got his happy ending. I don't think the film did that. I think it really, really explored these issues fully. And it was also, you know, going on at a time. This was sort of released. Get Out came out in 2017, which a year after the elections in America saw that Donald Trump became president, which incited a lot of racists in America and stuff like that to be emboldened some hatred yeah yeah it just it just got out of control so yeah it was for the time it was a perfect perfectly timed film and i think also it was interesting that he didn't go for the horrible sort of normal ending that would happen for me it seemed like i don't know he talked about all these problems and then just didn't want to leave it in a horrible way and knew that the film had done enough to teach this lesson but then to leave on like a slightly more positive note might actually have more of an impact. And I also thought for me to see a friend step out of the police car to Chris was really, really powerful because for somebody who is white, the the chances are that that person who stepped out of the police car is more likely to be their friend than somebody who is black. And I thought it really showed the power of if 
the police were on side. I, I thought that the, the film did a good job of having his friends step out of the car rather than an enemy, which is usually with what black men are met, shows that it doesn't you know, necessarily always have to be the case. And it suggested to me perhaps that he sees that the, the police force is re re repairable, which I thought was interesting because obviously a couple of years later we had the whole defund the police campaign, but this film seemed to suggest to me that there is something there that can be fixed. That's the end of the film, isn't it? Rod steps out of the car, you know, Chris is relieved, they get in the car and... And then he goes, it's the TSA. <laughs> it's Did the you know what the TSA was? <laughs> Did you know what the TSA was? Because I did not. Yeah, Probably it's the um, airport security, basically. Transportation Security Administration. <laughs> it's, it's pretty pretty big stuff. Which I, <laughs> yeah. I, that was something quite sweet throughout it. But yeah, what how did you find the film how did you did you find any did you see anything differently watching it again because i don't I, this was the second time i'd seen it what did you what did you notice a little bit more of of interest so this this was my second maybe third time watching it if i remember correctly previously i hadn't been watching it at through a like a you know a dni lens i think mm -hmm. watching it through this dni lens and critically going through it now has made me see so much more of the the hints from the beginning of the film you know we discussed earlier that rose not allowing the police officer to see chris's id that was because she didn't want him to be identified as missing if mm -hmm. you know it was to go ahead the transformation so like obviously having seen it multiple times before that that makes more sense but you don't see and also i'm a white man i i don't get a lot of what happens to chris it's there's subtle phrases and sentences said to him about his physique and all that and mm. as a white man that's not said to me yeah especially for me that what that when um he's across the table and he's calling him a beast mm. that was he's like and you know when we've got the training video and it says um we we could combine your strength with our t determination showing that to those people black people represent the physical you know, again, just relating back to slavery, just this physical exertion, this body that has no brain, apparently, um, while white people represent the intellectual. So I think, yeah, there's, it's interesting because the person I was watching it with also said the same thing. They said they didn't see, or like, I guess, hear as much of the microaggressions going in the film. And I don't know, sorry, the first time they watched the film. And I don't know if that's because maybe that's become more to the forefront with racial discussions, hopefully, and for me anyway, becoming more central to discussions with my friends and family. But also, it could also simply be because I think when you're watching a horror film for the first time, you're sort of on edge and sort of looking everywhere and you can't really, you don't really know when you can relax and like maybe listen a bit more fully. So I think it could be a bit of both. I think one of my, <laughs> one of my favourite, but like probably a bit of far-fetched sort of fan theories was that, sorry, motifs was that they all arrive in those black SUVs because they're planning to own control and use black bodies to get around. I thought that was a bit far-fetched, but I thought it was, it was still fun. There were a lot of, there were a lot of fun facts, weren't there, sort mm. of going through this. Oh, and that was my favourite fun fact is that all the characters wear hats or weird wigs because they've had the brain surgery. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, Georgina has that weird wig on. Yeah. And I saw how it, she looks exactly the same as the Stepford wives with that with like sort of fake weird wig on. And I thought it was that was an interesting thing that I sort of found out after I watched the film. But another thing that I sort of found out when I was researching this is that it's meant to be sort of an extreme version of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Have you seen Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? No. Sidney Poitier, who was the first black actor to win an Academy Award for Best Actor, was like a shining star in the black community, was starred in this film that was just, I watched the trailer yesterday and I burst out laughing at one of the lines he was told to say. So <laughs> Guess Who's Coming to Dinner is very, very similar vibes. So. It's a white girl taking her black partner home to meet her white parents. So she hasn't told her white parents that he's a black man. And you see their reaction to him and how he always has to pay the play as per usual in this genre, in this time 
a film, he has to play the forgiving, the understanding, the very docile black man who just forgives all of these aggressions that come his way. And there's this one line that was just, uh, where his dad was like, you know, I don't think you should go like, I don't think you should be with this white woman. I don't think it's good for you. And he holds his dad's shoulders and Sydney goes to him, you see yourself as a color man. I think of myself as a man. And I was just like, oh, this is just, this is like probably where that whole I don't see color yeah. line thought stemmed from. And I always find it interesting to know how black actors look back on things like that, like lines they've said or films they've done. I couldn't find a commentary from Sydney on that film in particular. But the one that I remember the most is Viola Davis recounting, because I think she was in The Help or mm -hmm. one of those films. And she, like sort of just look back on how she really regrets doing the role and just felt like talked about how she felt that she had to like it was like her opportunity to be famous and like sort of take off in her career and I think yeah that must have been a hard line for him to say I think my favorite critical response to get out was from the guardian who who said the villains here aren't southern rednecks or neo-nazi skinheads or the so-called alt-right they're middle-class white liberals the kind of people who read this website and oh. that, that was like yeah okay i read the guardian a lot um, for me that just speaks to how important it is for every single individual to realize how racism impacts their life and impacts the way they think that's like I think I said, to, I said to somebody a few years ago, most people are racist. I wonder if I would change this now to all people are racist, but, and they got so, so, so offended by it. And they were like, no, I'm not. Like, I don't, you know, go and like punch people because of, you know, the color of their skin. And I think that's why this film is so powerful because it shows that you don't need to be doing that to be harming black people. And I think obviously, you know, it's so like far-fetched the, the theme, but I think, the central idea of it is that you don't need to be this horrible, crazy, like villain to do things that are racist. And I think it speaks to the wider idea that everybody has prejudice and everybody has unconscious bias. And the only way we're gonna be able to move past that is if first of all, you can admit it. So then second of all, you can deal with it. So I think trying to go through life blind saying I'm colorblind, I don't deal with all, any of this. I don't think of any of this. There's no way then you're gonna be able to unpack your unconscious bias and work out why you keep hiring white straight men for roles at your company and i think that's what's so important and is a really really tough pill to swallow okay do you want to rate out of five for quality of the film i'm, I'm gonna give it a straight 10 10 all around five okay, five. five and five then yeah <laughs> it's getting a five and it's getting a five yeah i'm yeah. giving it i'm giving it 10 out of 10 <laughs> i think i might have to agree it is <laughs> yeah. such a good film on both dni standpoint and quality standpoint it would just, for me it came out of came out of nowhere it really did thinking there was Jordan, or anything yeah exactly jordan peele oh yeah snl fame and key and peele fame seen some of their comedy skits before out of nowhere brings this culture groundbreaking. shifting groundbreaking culture shifting film out of nowhere it was it's, just amazing it's so so good and like it just hasn't been done before and I just think I don't know how we haven't explored this angle before almost like I think that's when you see someone's a real genius who's come out of the exactly right time when everybody's asking why haven't we done this before and I think it was just and bear in mind I cannot watch horror films I went to go see this in the cinema <laughs> because my friend said it was really good and it was, I feel so sorry for the person I went with, with my friend, because I just kept screaming. Like, because it's quite a jump scare film. There's mm. some jump scare moments. And just me in the back going, ah! <laughs> I'm so sorry to everybody who was in that cinema at the same time as me. But the fact, and I also watched this the second time on my own, and I find it really, really difficult. Kudos to you horror people. But for me, I can't like spend two hours being like frightened and scared and upset. So I find it really, really difficult. So that just is a testament to how amazing this film is and how amazing its plot is. And I think, I don't know. I mean, this is something I wanted to ask you because I haven't seen that many horror films. This one felt really, really different that, that like it started a change in 
horror films becoming a bit, you know, more well-respected, having stronger plots and having stronger characters. Is this something that was happening before from a mainstream perspective? Or do you think this was just the first one I saw? So from a mainstream perspective, it kind of was one of the first ones to kind of take black characters in horror seriously. Mm -hmm. There's always the trope that black people die first in horror films. They but, also say all the time in horror films, don't yeah, they? Which they, they always acknowledge, they know, they they always go, oh, I'm not doing this, I'm not going alone, or, and stuff like that. But then they still end up being one of the first people to die in the film. Mm -hmm. So there, there is, you know, these racist tropes and stuff in horror. Obviously, we've had black exploitation films in horror. That was a whole debacle back decades ago. I think still does happen now as well. But Get Out was this paradigm shift of black actors and characters in horror being taken more seriously and mm. it was really refreshing to see the only other film i can think that does that is i'm thinking of i am legend i think that's one of the other few i think that counts as a horror film doesn't it zombie yeah. movies under horror film yeah. don't they which obviously has a black lead um, Candyman. does Candyman have a black lead yeah Candyman has two mm. black leads i think but i guess the real difference with this film is that the horror is race relations. Because yeah. I don't think that had been done before, had it? Um, not to my knowledge, but there probably is. I'm not. It's, it's always a hard question to answer. Yeah. yeah. It's always a hard question to ask and answer. But I think we're at least right in saying that this film really, really felt different. And yeah, in the in the mainstream, it did change a lot of people's perception of it. And I think also that's why I was so excited to watch Us, which I also, I might have even loved Us more. I can't really? decide. I really, oh. Anyone who loved this film, also go and watch Us. Because oh. the thing is, is that with Us, it's a bit scarier and a bit crazier. But I don't know. I think I wasn't ready for Get Out when it came out. That was when I was just so frightened that I really struggled to enjoy it. Whereas, and to be fair, actually the first 15 minutes of us, I nearly turned it off because I was so frightened. <laughs> but that, that shows you my horror tolerance. Yeah. But <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just, yeah, we love this film. Um, and yeah, thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed the episode and we will see you in the next one. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.